0: Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In case you're listening to the Morbid Tourism podcast for the first time, or if you're not caught up, this is the second episode in a two-part series. So if you haven't listened to episode 18, please go and listen to that first before diving into this one. It provides a lot of context and detail that you'll really need to fully understand part two. Quick recap on episode 18. On the night of November 12th, 1974, 23-year-old Butch DeFeo murdered his parents, Big Ronnie and Luis DeFeo. It is possible, in my personal belief, that he was assisted by his sister Dawn and possibly by his friend Bobby Kelski. After killing his parents, Butch and Bobby left the house for a short time, at which point Dawn killed the other three siblings, Allison, John Matthew, and Mark. Upon re-entering the home and finding his siblings dead, Butch then killed Dawn in a fit of rage, staged the scene to look like a possible break-in, and went to work. Butch was arrested, charged with all six murders, and although he attempted to plead insanity, saying that he heard voices and saw figures in the house, he was ultimately found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder and spent the rest of his life in prison. Now, it is entirely possible that Butch DeFeo committed these crimes solely on his own, but he's changed his story many times over the years. And looking at the evidence and the fact that all of the DeFeos were found in their beds, it seems highly likely that there was someone helping him, someone that was familiar with the children and could control them and keep them in their beds while all of this chaos was going on. But we don't know for certain. But that's not where the story ends for the house at 112 Ocean Avenue. Now, I don't usually cover cases of things like paranormal activity or hauntings and that kind of stuff. But since it is almost Halloween, I thought I'd make an exception, especially because what happened next does directly relate to the case of the DeFeo family murders. About a year after the murders, and less than a month after Butch DeFeo was convicted on the murders, on December 18, 1975, a new family bought the home at 112 Ocean Avenue for $80,000 and moved in. George and Kathy Lutz had each been married once before, and Kathy had three children from her previous marriage boys Danny and Chris, and their youngest child, Missy. The Lutzes were well aware of the mass murder that had taken place in the home the previous year, but although they were fairly religious, they weren't really superstitious and they didn't think that there was anything wrong with the home besides some general cleaning up that it needed after sitting empty for a year. But almost immediately upon moving in, the Lutzes started to experience very odd happenings around the house. It was the dead of winter, and George Lutz just could not seem to warm himself up, even though he obsessively fed the fire in the downstairs fireplace, and the thermostat even said that it was up to 80 degrees in the house. He also consistently woke up at around 3 a.m. every single night, and he felt drawn to the boathouse, though he couldn't really explain what he was out there looking for he started to become mean, losing his temper often and snapping at the children for small things. And he wasn't the only one experiencing changes. Kathy Lutz started to feel a presence with her in the kitchen. Although at first she felt that it was a gentle, just kind of touching her hand or her shoulder, it quickly became overpowering. And Kathy felt As though she was being held tightly while the smell of an unfamiliar perfume became thick in the air around her. She too began to lose her temper at the children quickly, even though she had always been patient and kind with them in the past. Things were odd about the house itself, too. Since Kathy was a Catholic and fairly religious, she invited over a priest that she was kind of friendly with. His name was Father Ralph J. Picaro. And she invited him to come bless the house. But once he entered the house, he allegedly heard a loud, booming voice telling him to get out. And he was extremely sick with the flu in the days following his visit. In the upstairs room where Kathy had planned on having her sewing room, hundreds upon hundreds of flies appeared out of nowhere one day and buzzed against the windows. Father Picaro told the Lutzes that he felt they needed to stay out of that room, that there was something very wrong with it, and they definitely shouldn't let the children into the room. When Kathy's aunt, who was once a nun, visited the couple in their new home, she refused to go into the sewing room and stayed in the house for only about a half an hour before feeling like she just had to leave, she had to get out. But the weird happenings were not confined to upstairs. In the basement of the home, the Lutzes discovered a hidden room beneath the stairs and behind a panel of shelves. This room was painted from floor to ceiling red, and they claimed that it smelled like blood. Not even the children were spared from these odd occurrences the youngest let's child, Missy, started talking and playing with a new imaginary friend named Jodi. Now, it is not uncommon for children to have imaginary friends. I know one of my cousins, when she was really young, would talk to no one. And when we asked who she was talking to, she would say, Oh, I'm talking to my ghosts, which was very creepy. But Jodi was different. Jodi was a large pig that would talk to Missy. The boys, Danny and Chris, found it really hard to make new friends in the neighborhood since none of the other kids wanted to come over and play at the infamous DeFeo house. George Lutz had worked as a land surveyor. It was a family business that his father had done for many years, and he took it over. Since he had some background in investigating land value, he started to research the history of his new home, beyond just the mass murder that he already knew about. He allegedly found evidence that a man named John Ketchum was run out of Salem, Massachusetts for being a witch and subsequently made his home on the plot of land where the house now stood. He was also allegedly buried somewhere on the property. Further, Lutz found evidence that the land was used by the Shinnecock Native American tribe to segregate their mentally ill. Meanwhile, the strange happenings in the house continued to escalate. The Lutzes continued to be terrorized inside of their home. Doors seemed to be torn off of their hinges from the inside. Their blankets would be torn off of them in the middle of the night, and Missy's imaginary friend Jody turned more and more sinister. The Lutzes had spent most of their money on the house and they desperately wanted to make it work, so they again tried to have the house blessed, but it did not help. The family ultimately fled from the home on the night of January 14, 1976, taking with them only a few changes of clothes. They lasted less than a month in the house before they fled in terror. The next day, Movers came to the home and collected the rest of the Lutz's belongings, so they never had to enter it again. After the Lutzes moved out, the home was visited by Ed and Lorraine Warren. You might recognize those names from the highly successful Conjuring movies, and you may have even seen a dramatic recreation of them visiting the Amityville house in one of the Conjuring movies, but if you haven't, if you don't know who they are, Ed and Lorraine Warren were self-proclaimed demonologists, and they were often called to locations that had some sort of demonic presence. They would attempt to exorcise the location or the person that was being possessed, and they used a variety of techniques to accomplish this. While they were investigating the Ocean Avenue home, they used infrared photography to try to capture what was invisible to the human eye. One image that they captured appears to show a young boy peeking over an upstairs banister with glowing white eyes. The Warrens confirmed that due to the home's history, it was being haunted by malevolent spirits. The Lutzes were introduced to Jay Anson shortly after they moved out of the home. Jay Anson was a writer who had previously written several documentary shorts that mainly centered around the film industry and movie making, sort of like the making of whatever movie. The Lutzes recorded over 40 hours of audio detailing what had happened to them inside the house on Ocean Avenue, which Anson then took and made into a book titled The Amityville Horror, A True Story which centered around the Lutz's experience in the home and was released in 1977. The book was a hit, and to date, it's sold around 10 million copies. It was quickly made into a movie by the same name that was released in 1979, starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. Since that first movie was released, another 15 movies have come out under the Amityville name. Though, as I mentioned in episode one, a good amount of those weren't released in theaters and were direct-to-video or DVD or streaming. At the time that the book was getting ready for release, the Lutzes had hired a new lawyer, a man named Bill Weber. Hopefully, if you listen to part one of this episode, that name sounds familiar to you, since Mr. Weber was the same lawyer who also represented Butch DeFeo in the DeFeo family murders case. You might think, oh, maybe that's a coincidence that there just aren't very many lawyers in Amityville, or since Mr. Weber already knew the history of the house, it was easy for him to take on the needs of the Lutzes as well. And if you ask the Lutzes, that's pretty much what they would tell you. But more likely, it was no coincidence and all part of a larger plan to make as much money as possible. In the book, The Night the DeFeos Died, Rick Asuna claims that before Butch's trial even began, Bill Weber had been approached by multiple people wanting to write a book about the whole affair. Thinking about the profit that could be made from such a high-profile event, Mr. Weber formed a company for the book. He promised Butch that when Butch got out of jail, he would get some of the profits from the book as well, and Remember, this was happening all before the trial, so Butch still had high hopes of getting a light sentence. Weber met George and Kathy Lutz through mutual friends, and over a few bottles of wine, they came up with a plan where the Lutzes would move into the home and claim that they started to experience paranormal or demonic activity in the house. And before you think that I'm just making this up as an easy way to write off the Amityville horror book or The Possessions or whatever, Bill Weber himself has corroborated this story and said that they all came up with a haunting story over wine before the Lutzes even moved in. In the deal, Bill Weber would get a corroborating story for Butch DeFeo's insanity plea. The Lutzes, who had been in a tough spot financially for a while, would get 50% of the proceeds from the book. Unfortunately, Mr. Weber had counted on an adjournment to be granted before the DeFeo murder case actually began, which would have given the Lutzes time to purchase and move into the home before the trial started. That adjournment was denied, meaning that the case would have to go on before the Lutzes had time to purchase the house without raising any suspicions. In February of 1976, after the Lutzes had moved out of the home and Butch DeFeo had already been sentenced, the Lutzes held a press conference with Mr. Weber, at which Mr. Weber stated that the evidence brought forth by the Lutzes could be enough to win his client a new trial on the grounds that something natural was occurring in the home that could have driven Butch DeFeo to commit the murders against his will. This, of course, was exactly how it was orchestrated to look by Mr. Webber himself. In following appeals to get Butch DeFeo a retrial, Mr. Webber's efforts had failed, and the subsequent judges looked at the whole Amityville Horror House as a hoax. The Lutzes made out better, though over the years they claimed that they never profited off of the story and even sold the house at a loss, According to a Newsday article in September of 1979, the Lutzes had already made around $200,000 from the book and movies, and they were able to purchase a much larger home. Over the years, the Amityville horror hoax has been debunked time and time again. The priest who was said to have blessed the house only to hear a loud voice telling him to get out claimed that he only ever talked to the Lutzes over the phone and never even went to their house. It should also be noted that his name was changed in the book from Father Picaro to Father Mancuso. Decades after the book was published, Mr. Weber himself came out and said on record that him and the Lutzes had made the whole thing up. Even the Lutz children have claimed that the majority of what was written in the book was a lie, although when one of the children had grown into an adult, he did attempt to make a documentary of his own about the home and the strange happenings there. It's my personal belief that he was a very impressionable young child at the time, that all of this was going on, and over the years he probably did believe that some of it actually happened, but in the end he was just doing as his parents had done, which was attempting to profit off of the stories surrounding the infamous house. The claims that the house once stood on ground that was used by Native Americans to house their mentally ill has also been debunked. Although the Shinnecock tribe did live in the area before it was claimed by European settlers, the tribe never had a practice of separating the ill or mentally impaired members of the tribe, and tribal leaders and historians have stated that none of the claims made in the Amityville Horrors book are true. By 1977, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue was back on the market and sold to a couple, Jim and Barbara Cromarty, for $55,000, which, like I said, it was a loss to the Lutzes, but one that was already factored into the ultimate plan. The Cromarties lived there for about a decade, and they never experienced a single demonic or paranormal event happening inside the home. In fact, since the Lutzes, none of the occupants of 112 Ocean Avenue have experienced anything paranormal at all. The only thing that was abnormal about the house was that people from all across the country would come to the house just to get a peek at the infamous Amityville Horror House. The tourists actually became such a hassle to the homeowners that they took steps to throw off those seeking it. They changed the address to 108 Ocean Avenue and even had Google blur the house on Google Street View. They also replaced the infamous half-moon windows that made it look like the side of the house had a face. Those windows are now just standard square windows and makes the house much less recognizable to those who seek it out. Over the years, the story of the fake demonic possession in the house overshadowed the true tragedy that happened there when six lives were taken. People were able to profit off of the murder by making up scary stories about demon pigs and swarms of flies when the actual story of what happened there was already terrible enough and should have been met with respect for the lives lost. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Amityville Horror House. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating or review. Please let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. We have over 100 locations on the site for you to learn about. You can follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger, with additional research by Amanda Poikert. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, IMDb, Realtor.com, Thought Catalog, the book The Night the DeFeos Died by Rick Asuna, the book Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, the podcast Quite Unusual, and the blog A Grave Interest.